The scripture reading for, for today is Luke 10:25 to 42. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and you neighbor as yourself. And he had said this to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen a good portion which will not be taken away from her. This is God's word. you wish to follow uh, Bibles, you could turn to Luke chapter 10. In your pew Bibles, that's page 868. <clears throat> so we've entered a new year. And it's common at this time to take inventory of our lives to think ahead to the new year and what we would change and make resolutions. As I went online to look at some of the resolutions, I I found one that sounded really good. It was written by the editors of LifeScript. It gave us five resolutions. One is to get healthy. Two, stop smoking. Three, expand our horizons. Four, pay it forward, and five, laugh more. And it's a nice holistic approach to trying to touch our bodies and and our spirits and get us looking beyond ourselves, enjoying life, but looking out for others at the same time. What I'd like to do this morning is take it a, a step further and to look at life from God's perspective and how we can move forward as individuals 
in 2017 in pursuing life as it was meant to be. Our Father, we know that the truths we share are your truths. So I pray that your spirit would bring these home into my heart first. Refresh them if they're truths we've heard before. Meet us in a special way if they are new to us. But Lord, we open our hearts to you because we feel safe in your hands because we know the vastness of your love. Allow us to see life as you see it and to see ourselves where we fall short and lead us forward. In Christ's name, amen. As you'll notice, we looked really at three pericopes. One is the question of the lawyer. How do you inherit eternal life? Then Jesus' response that includes the parable of the Good Samaritan, and then a story about Mary and Martha with Jesus. And what we're going to see in these stories are, first, what really life is all about. Secondly, what keeps us from getting that life? What are the critical mistakes of people who still need God and people who actually have God? For each of us makes critical mistakes in keeping us from having the life that God wants us to have. So the story begins with Jesus asking, excuse me, Jesus having a lawyer come to him. Now, a lawyer technically is a scribe, and it's a lawyer who is an expert in the law. And he's actually testing Jesus with this question, but it truly uncovers most important things in life. For he asks the most important question anyone could ever ask, and that is, how do I inherit eternal life? Because if we have eternal life, we really have it all. What exactly is eternal life? And usually we think that means, well, eternal life is getting to heaven. But eternal life is much more. It begins with life itself. And Jesus says that's what he came to bring us in John 10.10. 10. He said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. Now, people first hearing that might think, what do you mean you came to give me life? I mean, I'm alive. I'm breathing. My heart is beating. I'm conscious. What are you talking about that you came to give us life? And so obviously Jesus is talking about something greater than mere existence. He is talking about life as it was meant to be. And then he he crescendos with the concept of the life I bring is abundant life. God created us to have abundant lives, full, full of purpose, full of love, full of significance, security, purpose, and joy. That's what God wants us to have. Eternal life is simply that life existing forever. And so Jesus turns that question on the lawyer and he says, well, what does the law say? 
What, what do the scriptures talk say about eternal life? How you get it and really what it is. And he answers correctly. He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength, and your neighbor yourself. So he is saying that life is about love. And he's right. And I think that's a truth that resonates with every one of our hearts. I remember early in my Christian days, I was in a conversation. I was just out of college and was in a conversation with a woman about my age. And I said to her, the foundation of my life is Jesus Christ. What's the foundation of your life? And she replied, love. I didn't know how to answer that because it's a, it's a pretty good answer. <laughs> and I think it's an answer most thoughtful people will say, yeah, love should be the foundation of our lives. Uh, that's, it's what our lives should be all about. Think of our songs. I mean, the Beatles captured it very clearly. All you need is love. Others... Going back even further, what makes the world go round? Love makes the world go round. And what is it this world needs more of? Fifty years ago, Dion Warwick sang, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. A few years ago, the Black Eyed Peas gave the same message. Where is the love? It isn't just in our songs. It resonates in every arena of life. Think in terms of ethics and morality. Joseph Fletcher led the way by saying the moral choices are those that are based on love. If you want to know the right decision, do the loving thing. Our psychologists speak of the centrality of love. John Bowlby in his book uh, secure base. As he studied children, he came up with a theory of attachment that it is critical for children, even infants, to feel connected to, to feel the love of their parents. It's only then that they can thrive in life. We see that the same with adults. Whether it be Abraham Maslow and his hierarchy of needs, how essential belonging is to be connected, to, to be in loving relationships. We cannot thrive apart from those. Viktor Frankl, who was in Auschwitz in that death camp, and he saw the people whose lives completely fell apart and those who maintained a, a, a good spirit. And he saw that the difference was really looking outside ourselves, as it says. He concluded that meaning comes when one does something that is directed to something or someone other than oneself by giving oneself to a cause or to another person to love. It's the only way we thrive in life, to love. And it's not just true of our spirits, it's even true of our biology, In his book, Social Conscience, he writes, Neuroscience 
has discovered that our brain's very design makes it sociable. To a surprising extent, then, our relationships mold not just our experience, but our biology. Nourishing relationships have a beneficial impact upon our health, while toxic ones can act like a slow poison in our bodies. Love makes the world go round. Our world knows that. But the question is, why are we so hardwired for love? And the reason is because we are created by a God who is love. There is no other philosophy or religion in life that can explain why love is so central outside of Christianity. Evolutionists' building block theory of survival of the fittest is the exact opposite of giving your life away for someone else. Various religions, polytheism, you don't have gods coming together who love each other. You have gods who are fighting to keep their own turf. Pantheistic religions don't even have a personal God. Therefore, you cannot have personal love. And monotheistic religions, apart from Christianity, have gods who have existed by themselves before creation. And somebody by himself cannot have love at the core of his being because there is no one else to love except oneself. Therefore, the core of a monotheistic God who's all by himself would be self-love. But Christianity speaks of one God in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who before creation had a relationship of perfect joy as they loved and glorified one another. In John 17, 26, Jesus prayed about this relationship. In regards to this relationship, he said, I made known to the disciples your name. I'll continue to make your name known, Father. Why? That the love which you have loved me may be in them and that I may be in them. See what he's saying is, Father, we have had an eternal, perfect love relationship. That's why I created others. That's why I give my life to invite others into that love relationship which we have. That is what abundant life is all about. Jesus confirmed it earlier in John 17, 3, when he defined eternal life, and he said, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So in many ways, you can have three different descriptions of life as it was meant to be. One, the abundant life, the full life. Two, a life of love, not just loving our neighbors, but first, loving God with all our beings. A third description is to know God, to know his love, and to live out that love toward God and toward our neighbors. That's why you have this great command. Love God. Love your neighbor. 
So that is life. That's what God wants us to all experience. And that's where we find perfect joy. Jesus said to his disciples, I speak these things to you that my joy may be in you so that your joy is complete. Think about that. Jesus wants us to have perfect, complete joy. But that joy is the same joy he has, which is the joy of that loving relationship with God. So that's life. But those who, do, who still need God make a critical mistake, which leads them to not getting that life. And those who know God make another critical mistake in keeping them from experiencing that life. So we're going to look at first, as we see in the lawyer himself, the critical mistake that people who don't know God make. And then we're going to look at Martha and see the critical mistake those who do know God, who Christians themselves make. So what's that mistake the lawyer makes? Well, it's found in the word justify. After Jesus says, you've answered correctly, you got it right, life is about love, and then the lawyer asks another question. In order to justify himself, he says, and who is my neighbor? Now, the word justify or justification is the word the Bible uses to speak about one having a right relationship with God. Christians often use saved for that. The Bible uses justified for that. So what the lawyer is trying to say is, well, I want to prove to myself and to you that I have a right relationship with God. So, you know, tell everybody who your neighbor is because I'm really sure I measure up. I love my neighbor. Jesus shocks everyone with his answer. Because the neighbor is not simply the person who lives next door or in your neighborhood. It's not your family members. It's not the people who like you. It's not even your kind of people. The lawyer might have thought, well, maybe God's chosen people. I need to love all of them. Jesus breaks through all of that self-justification and says, your neighbor is the person you most despise. And so that's why he tells the story. He says the man goes down, he's beaten up, robbed, and he's left to die on the side of the road. And who comes by? Priest and a Levi. Now I imagine in the scribe or the lawyer's mind, these are the men most likely to be justified, most likely to have a right relationship with God. After all, the priest is the one who's the intermediary between man and God. So certainly the the priest is justified. And Jesus in his story shows he is not because he does not love as God has called him to. He comes by one of his own and moves to the other side of the road to avoid him. And I always wonder, why do you move to the other side of the road? 
why not just walk by them? And because we're trying to remove ourselves, we're trying to live in denial of what we're doing. Then in the story, the Samaritans, who are hated by the Jewish people, who are practically at war with them over discretions they've done toward one another. But in this story, the Samaritan goes, reaches out in love, and then pours himself out of that love by not only tending to his wounds, bringing him to an inn, leaving money, but then saying, no matter what the cost, when I come back, I will pay for it. And so what this story does is it breaks through the self-lies of that lawyer. He thinks he stands rightly before God. Jesus is saying, you do not, because you do not do the most basic thing that God has called you to, that you well know he has called you to, you do not love your neighbor. If you don't love your neighbor, you don't really love God. The biggest mistake, people who don't know God, people who are not Christian make, is they justify themselves before God. They think they stand rightly before God when they don't. They are in denial. We are very good at lying to ourselves. And what people do is we lie to ourselves about who God is. And we create a God in our minds that is pleased with the way we live, or at least whose standards we can in some way meet. And therefore, we think God is fine with us. Some people create a God in their mind who simply is happy with the way they live. You know, they've, we've all made particular choices and have particular value systems. And what we just do is we start with those and say, because I have these, God must have them. My wife had such a, a conversation with such a, a student where the student said to her, God wants me to be happy. So, if I don't want to carry a baby, he's happy, he's fine, and he's happy with the fact I get an abortion because that's what's going to make me happy. In other words, she said, no matter what I do in life, if I think it's going to be, make me happy, my God is pleased with that. That's not the God of Scripture. Others look at God as Perfect love, but that's the only quality they look at. They ignore the fact that the Bible says God is holy, God is righteous, and God is just. And so they may know that they sin some, but they're saying, but God loves us, therefore he overlooks our sins. Our sins do not matter to him at all. I remember one of my college roommates after I became a Christian and he was seeing how involved I was getting in the Christian life. And so he gave me his picture of God. He said, well, the way I look at it is, you know, I mean, I'm 
you know, I'm doing all sorts of stuff down here, and, you know, it's, it's not so great. You know, I'm involved in a lot of stuff I know I shouldn't be, but I see God up there, and he's looking down at me, and he's and he's just chuckling. <laughs> Look at the trouble he's getting himself into. That's a reinvention of God. Others reinvent God, knowing that they have sin, but think, you know, God grades on a curve. And of course, I'm in the top percent. Or, I know I have sin, but God wrote in the Bible a way for me to make up and atone for my sins. So if I go to church and I read the Bible and I pray a lot and I serve in the church and I help other people, that's going to make up for my sin so that God accepts me. Those are all big mistakes because we're not dealing with the God of Scripture himself. Sin is horrific in God's sight. It is not only a betrayal of him, it is a pushing away from him and saying, I will fulfill my life, my way, outside of you, God. That sin separates us from God. See, the one thing we need to get eternal life is we have to place our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior, as the one who took our sin upon himself so that that sin, that barrier that's between us and God is taken away. We will not receive Jesus as Savior. We may receive him as anything else, We will not receive him as Savior unless we know we are lost, that our sin separates from God. We desperately need someone to take our sin away, and that's what Jesus Christ came to do. We are not to be like the Pharisee in the prayer parable where Jesus positions him next to the tax collector who says, God, thank you that you didn't make me like other people. I'm not only in the top 10%, I'm in the top 1%. I'm not uh, the slanderer, the sinner, an adulterer, or like this tax collector. He was justifying himself. He thought he stood fine before God. But God said he did not go down justifying. Instead, it was the tax collector, that man completely broken by sin, abusing others with his sin, who said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We have to be honest with God. We are sinners. We desperately need God's mercy that comes through the cross of Jesus Christ. So God has a life for us. The critical mistake non-Christians make is they don't realize they need a Savior to save them. The next pericope is for the Christian who has a relationship with God, who has accepted Jesus Christ and is trying to live out that Christian life. And Martha represents this critical mistake that I make so often. We see the story Martha invites Jesus to the house. She is busy preparing the meal. She is pouring herself out in every way while her sister simply sits there with Jesus. 
And she comes to Jesus and asks Jesus to rebuke her sister. For clearly her sister is living wrongly and she is living rightly. As we read this story, before we see Jesus' response, when we read this story, I think all of us line up with Martha and say, Martha's doing the right thing. I mean, look at her. She's the one that invited Jesus over. She's the one who's prepared the meal beforehand. She's the one who's made the house right and comfortable for him. She's the one that's slaving away now in the kitchen and serving every need. She's the one pouring out her life for Jesus while her sister sits there. And until we see Jesus' response, we're saying, Martha's right. And then Jesus responds. And he says, no, Mary is right. Martha, you're busy with too many things. Mary has chosen the good thing. And what is that? Sitting at Jesus' feet? Yes. It is about, Christianity is about relationship with God. It is about absorbing the love of Jesus Christ into our lives, sitting at his feet to see him as he clearly is, to learn everything that he has to offer us in every way in which he will lead us and guide us in our lives. The Christian life is about relationship. We all say that, but do we live it? Or do we really live as Martha's where it's all about service, it's all about doing? And Jesus says, that's not the Christian life. Now, clearly, service is really important to Jesus. He said to his disciples, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve to the point of giving his life for many. One of the last acts Jesus did before he went to the cross was in the upper room, he washed the disciples' feet as a meta-narrative to the way all Christians are to live. Humble service to one another. No, service is critical. But what Jesus is saying in this story is you don't start with service. You start with relationship. And our service grows out of that relationship. So Martha here is doing the One thing that we all need, deepening our relationship with Jesus Christ and living out of it. And of course, Martha is very critical of it. What's interesting later is Mary did serve Jesus. She took an ointment and valuable, treasured perfume and poured it on Jesus' head washed his feet with it, worshipped him, served him. And the disciples looked and said, boy, you're wasting a lot of good money there. You see, it's very natural for Christians to fall into the trap of Martha and the disciples and not being a Mary. Jesus said this, as a branch abides in the vine. So, excuse me, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, 
Neither can you unless you abide in me. He gives us the picture of a branch getting its life from the vine. Take that branch apart, it's going to wither up. There's no way it can bear fruit. Christ wants our lives to bear fruit. He wants us to serve. He wants us to love. But what he's saying is, it isn't going to bear that fruit apart from being connected to Jesus Christ and living first and foremost in him. Are we as Christians making the critical mistake in making Christianity about worship, giving, service? Those are outgrowths. Christian life has to be about being with Jesus Christ absorbing his love into our lives so that fills every divine need in our lives. So we don't turn outward to sin to fulfill those. They are filled and satisfied by Jesus Christ. Christ wants us to have the abundant life. The mistake non-Christians make is they think they're fine with God when they desperately need to receive Jesus as Savior. Mistake Christians make is we think we're perfectly fine with God because we're doing for him without being with him. Charles Haddon Spurgeon preached 150 years ago. He said, My friends... You who know anything about spiritual life, do you not feel that when you have the sweet thoughts of God breathed into you from above and have his special love shed abroad in your hearts, it is then that you are holiest? Have you not perceived that the only way in which you can grow in that which is morally and spiritually lovely is by having your gracious God high in your esteem in feeling his precious love firing in your hearts. Our Father, I know you've spent your spirit to make your love and the love of Jesus Christ real in our lives. And we know your spirit uses the word of God as his very sword to cut those truths into our lives. Lord, let us resolve to know you more fully more deeply, more completely in this new year. And then let that life flow out in love to you and love for our neighbors. In Jesus we pray, amen.